This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. We're back. Welcome to Violent Ends. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. My springtime hiatus is officially over, so it's time to dive back into the world of Michigan-made true crime. Way back in episode one, we talked about one Mr. H.H. Holmes. You remember, I said the F word 22 times in the first 22 minutes, Danny and I interviewed H.H.'s great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, which was so interesting. We talked about Holmes's time as a med student at the University of Michigan, the theory that he may have been Jack the Ripper, and we also talked about the best-selling book about Holmes's reign of terror, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. What I didn't tell you at that time, because I did not know this, or I definitely would have mentioned it, was that Holmes was not the only University of Michigan med student suspected of being Jack the Ripper. Yeah, there was another. Not only did this possible Ripper attend the same alma mater as Holmes, But he also had a best-selling book written about him by Eric Larson, and his name was also H.H. This is super weird, right? I love a good coincidence, but this is downright spooky. Both possibly Jack the Ripper, both University of Michigan graduates, both named H.H., both, spoiler alert here, sent to the gallows for murder, and both with lots of ties to the great state of Michigan. H.H. number two's ties to Michigan are arguably stronger, though, because he was born here in the mitten. Is it possible that a Michigander was Jack the Ripper? Probably not, but the story is bonkers nonetheless. So buckle up, buttercups. It's time for a wild ride. The Crippen clan of New York arrived in Michigan in 1835 during the great New York to Michigan migration, which saw entire communities uprooted from the Empire State and replanted here in the Mitten. The Crippens, and there were a lot of them, settled primarily in southeast Michigan and wasted no time involving themselves in the building of cities. The family, led by Patriarch Philo Crippen, was devoutly Episcopalian, and when I say Philo brought the whole clan with him, we're talking his parents, siblings, cousins, in-laws, the in-laws, in-laws, the kids, the kids' kids, everybody. They essentially found a little baby fledgling city with no infrastructure and very few residents and invaded it. Today, we know this area as Coldwater, a city of just under 14,000, Uh, that we know around these parts as the site of the Jeepers Creepers murder, and also now the birthplace of Harriet Quimby, the first female aviator in the U.S. We just did an episode on her earlier this season. Philo bought some farmland as well as a house in the city, 
And he and his family opened dry goods stores and produce stores and flour mills and general stores and real estate companies. They took over the churches as pastors and organists. They ran the schools as principals and teachers. They held positions within the city government. Before long, there was a Crippen building and a Crippen street. And I have to wonder, so here in the Lansing area, at least, um, Crippen Auto has always been a big uh, auto sales resale company. Lots of commercials. Lots of commercials. I remember those. So I have to wonder if those Crippens are the same Crippens from Coldwater. Um, I don't know, but I, I love to speculate. You know, we love to speculate around here, right? So while Philo and his wife, Sophia, both came from large families, together they only had three children. I'm guessing one of those children died very young as I couldn't find any information on them at all, not even a name. But in the 1850 U.S. Census, they had two teenagers, 17-year-old Mary and 15-year-old Myron. Myron, who was born in 1835, the same year that the Crippens settled here in Michigan, went on to inherit his father's dry goods empire and married one Artisy Skinner, who went by Cordessa. I also like Cordessa better than Artisy, but hey. So they bought a house located at 66 North Monroe Street in Coldwater, and together they had two children, daughter Ella Sophia, who was born in 1857, and son Holly Harvey, who was born five years later in 1862. And this is the branch of the Crippen family that we'll be focusing on today. But before we get into all of that, I do need to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Vitamins can make a huge difference in how you feel, and Care Of recognizes that they're only a piece of the puzzle, so... Care Of just updated their companion app with new features that help you build a holistic daily wellness routine and track how your routine is working over time. All you have to do is take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation. This quiz can be taken anytime to switch up your packs as your lifestyle and needs change. Care Of makes it super convenient to prioritize your health by putting each day's supplements into individual packs. So there's no measuring, counting, sorting. You can just grab your daily pack on your way out the door in the morning and go. That's what I do. I love knowing that I get, among other things, a little elderberry boost every morning. Elderberry has been used in Europe for centuries for its powerful antioxidant properties as a way to help promote healthy immune function. And who couldn't use a little of that in their daily lives? For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code VIOLENTENDS50. Again, that's takecareof.com, promo code VIOLENTENDS50 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, back to Holly Harvey Crippen who was born during the tumult of the Civil War. Uh, He was just two years old when his big sister died when she was seven. I assume from an illness, but I couldn't find anything that said. The Crippens came from Hardy Stock. And while Holly, who often went by Harvey, but sometimes Peter, 
and then later just preferred to be called doctor, got the brains and entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit that so many of his kin possessed, he was absent the day the gods were handing out that crip and grit. He was a small, sickly child who grew into a small, sickly adult. He was quiet, meek, slow to develop, and often bullied. As a 48-year-old man, this was how a newspaper described him. And here's your reminder that old-timey newspapers were savage. Height, 5 foot 3 inches. Complexion fresh. Hair light brown. Scanty and bald on top. Long, sandy mustache, rather straggly. Maybe clean-shaven or wearing a beard. Eyes gray. I put eyes straggly. <laughs> That's just super rude. <laughs> eyes gray. Flat on bridge of nose. False teeth. Wears gold-rimmed spectacles. Rather slovenly appearance. I looked it up just to make sure I knew what that meant. It just means dirty or messy. Throws his feet out when walking. Quiet spoken. Carries firearms. Shows his teeth much when talking. (laughs) What kind of description is that? Um, So a lot of articles that I read described him as milk toast, which according to the Oxford Dictionary means feeble, timid, insipid, or bland. Holly did have a privileged childhood, which tends to be the case when your family runs the town, but again, he was often the target of bullies, um, and he didn't have, like, a ton of friends, but, you know, whatever. H.H. Crippen enrolled at the University of Michigan School of I should have looked how to say this up. So I know that it's homeopathic when you're saying it that way, but when it's homeopathy, homeopathy, I don't know how to say it. And I meant to look it up and I didn't. So you guys tell me. Um, But that's where he went. And he enrolled in 1882, which was the same year that one Mr. H.H. Holmes enrolled in the school's Department of Medicine and Surgery. Given that the men were the same age, 20, at the time of enrollment, The school was very small because it was still the 1800s, and they were both oddly named H.H. I mean, I'm going to speculate here again that they probably crossed paths at least a time or two. While H.H. Holmes went on to graduate with a medical degree in 1884, then become America's first serial killer and murder possibly upwards of 200 people over the next decade before being apprehended in 1894, H. H. Crippen dropped out of U of M after a semester, and he headed over the pond to London with hopes of furthering his medical education. But he didn't really like London any more than he liked U of M, so he returned to the States, and he enrolled in courses at Cleveland Homeopathic Hospital in Ohio. See, I know how to say it like that. As H. H. bounced around the country, his hometown of Coldwater followed his exploits closely. He was a Crippen, after all. His trip home when his grandmother died, his graduation from this university, and his new enrollment at that university, and his new job in this state. All of that was tracked closely by the local newspaper, the Coldwater Courier. So lots and lots of nonsensy articles about Mr. H.H. Crippen. After graduating from Cleveland's homeopathic hospital, 
H.H. studied ophthalmology in New York, which is where he met his first wife, Charlotte Jane Bell, an Irish immigrant four years his senior. They married just before Christmas of 1887, when H.H. was 25 and Charlotte was 29. Together, they moved to San Diego, where Crippen opened his first medical practice. His parents joined their only child on the West Coast soon after. They settled in Los Angeles, so they were like a day's train ride from San Diego still, but that's better than, you know, the week or longer that it would take to get from Michigan to San Diego back in the 1800s. In 1889, when H.H. was 27, his first and only child, a son named Holly Otto, was born. Soon after, the little family moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and soon Charlotte was pregnant again. On January 24, 1892, just weeks before she was due to give birth to her second child, 33-year-old Charlotte died suddenly of a stroke. She left behind her 29-year-old husband and her 4-year-old little boy. And soon, H.H. would leave the little boy behind as well. He sent his son to Los Angeles to be raised by his parents, so Otto's grandparents, and then H.H. relocated to the complete opposite side of the country, settling once again in New York. He took an internship internship at a doctor's office there, and it was there that he met wife number two, a 17-year-old patient by the name of Cora Turner, who came to the practice because of feminine troubles she was having. Cora was a struggling music hall singer, a.k.a. she was not good. She had no talent at all, but she was very committed to her craft and very confident in her uh, lack of abilities. Uh, She performed under the stage name Belle Elmore. So H.H. and Cora were married in 1894 when he was 32 and she was 22. Coincidentally, this was the same year that the other H.H., Mr. Holmes, was finally arrested for all of the murdering he'd been doing over the past decade. Together, the H.H. who was not a serial killer and his young wife, Cora, moved from New York to St. Louis, then back to New York. During those early years, Cora continued to suffer from the feminine troubles that took her into HH's doctor's office to begin with um, and wound up having a pretty gnarly surgery to have her ovaries removed, which meant that she would never be able to bear children. According to Cora's family and friends, this was a great source of grief for both her and HH as they both just loved children and wanted a family so bad. I'm going to jump in and call bullshit on that because H.H. Had, had a kid. He had a family. He had a little boy across the country that he'd abandoned and left for his parents to raise. So did he love children? No. Did he want to give Cora a baby to make her happy? Yes, obviously. Was she a piece of shit for complaining to everybody that she would never have a family and never have a child when she had a stepson? that she could have brought to live with her? Ah, yeah. So H.H. and Cora's marriage pretty much landed on a rough patch right from get-go and just never recovered. 
There was the whole inability to have babies thing, then a recession that made it hard for HH to keep a job. The two moved all over the country, their living quarters smaller and their cities less glamorous each time, before they eventually found themselves living in Brooklyn with Cora's stepfather. This was an unacceptable arrangement to Cora, who had big, big dreams. One newspaper described Cora as robust and animal. Her vitality was of that loud, aggressive, and physical kind. She was impulsive, energetic, strong-willed, not to mention easy on the eyes with lush proportions, as the papers put it. Basically, Cora was a big, beautiful steamroller, and H.H. was the crumbly, stinky asphalt. What she saw in him, I have no idea, and pretty soon, she didn't see it anymore either, and she began openly having affairs. In 1897, the Crippens moved to London, where H.H. was to oversee operations at the Munion Homeopathic Home Remedy Company. Cora continued to pursue her stage career, even though all the singing and dancing lessons in the world wouldn't give her the necessary skills to make it in the business. And H.H. knew this because he paid for all of the singing and dancing lessons in the world, and it didn't help. For many years, he did whatever he could to make his wife happy. He'd married up, and he knew it. While Cora would never find the fame she sought, she became kind of like famous adjacent. She made some friends in the theater world, and she took a position as the treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild. In 1899, just two years after moving to London, H.H. lost his job because he was too focused on Cora's non-existent stage career. So he went and got another job. I, I will say this. He lost a lot of jobs, but it seems like he like immediately found new ones. So good on him for that, at least. Um, this job was at Druitt's Institution for the Deaf, and he started working there in 1900. And this, my friends, is where the real trouble begins, because this position allowed for H.H. to have his own secretary, and he hired 17-year-old Ethel Lenave for the job. So this guy loved him some 17-year-olds, only he was a lot older going after this 17-year-old than the one before. So H.H. is 38 years old. He's super dweeby. Couldn't keep a job, couldn't keep a home, couldn't keep his wife happy. How he kept snagging these beautiful young women is beyond me. But by 1905, the same year that he and Cora rented a spacious villa at 39 Hilldrop Crescent in London, H.H. and his young secretary were hot and heavy having a full-blown affair. Now, this house at 39 Hilldrop Crescent had lots of bedrooms, enough that H.H. and Cora each had their own room, and they were able to rent out space to boarders to supplement their income. Cora screened the boarders and decided who got to live with them, and so to no one's surprise, she had affairs with many of them. And this became the Crippen's life in London. By 1910, 
quiet, homely, 47-year-old Holly Harvey Crippen was working with the deaf and madly in love with his pretty 27-year-old secretary, Ethel. His larger-than-life, beautiful but brutal wife, 37-year-old Cora, had a stalled stage career and a long history of affairs, with boarders, with other performers, probably with the neighbors. She didn't love any of these men, but at least they weren't H.H., who she openly hated, and everybody knew this. On January 31st, 1910, the Crippens hosted a dinner party for two of Cora's closest friends, Paul and Clara Martinetti. The evening was pleasant enough, save for one pretty awkward encounter. When Paul asked to use the toilet, H.H. pointed him up the stairs rather than escorting him, and this caused Cora to berate her husband for being a bad host. I would argue that her berating her husband in front of their guests also made her a bad host, but tomato, tomato. So this is definitely not like a comfortable situation for their guests to be in, But given the volatile nature of the Crippen's relationship, it wasn't anything, you know, too outrageous. So the Martinettis stayed late into the evening, leaving around 1 a.m. on February 1st, 2000. (laughs) February 1st, 2010, they stayed for a whole century, a hundred years. Um, No, February 1st, 1910, around 1 a.m. is when they left the home and they were the last people to ever see Cora Crippen alive. It didn't take long for Cora's friends and colleagues to notice her absence. H.H. told people she'd gone back home to America to visit a relative who'd fallen ill. Cora's people thought it was super suspicious that she would just up and leave so quickly without telling anybody But then they received a letter at the music hall where she worked and really wanted to perform but couldn't because she sucked. And the letter read, Dear friends, please forgive me a hasty letter and any inconvenience I may cause you, but I have just had news of the illness of a dear relative and at only a few hours' notice, I am obliged to go to America Under the circumstances, I cannot return for several months, and I therefore beg you to accept this as a formal resigning, as a formal resigning, yeah, that's what it says, as a formal resigning from this date of the honorary treasurership of the Music Hall Ladies Guild. People spoke so confusingly back then. I feel like I'm reading a letter written by Yoda here, but let's keep going. I am enclosing the checkbook and the deposit book for the immediate use of my successor and to save any delay. I beg to suggest you should vote to suspend the usual rules of election and elect today a new treasurer. Yoda. I hope some months later to be with you and in the meantime, wish the guild every success and I ask my good friends and pals to accept my sincere and loving wishes for their own personal welfare. Believe me yours faithfully. Okay, I do love that sign off. I'm going to start using it. Believe me yours faithfully, Belle Elmore, which again, that was her stage name. That was how she identified herself, but we're using her her government name here today. Um, So the thing about this letter, though, 
was that Bell Elmore was spelled wrong. Elmore only had one L and the letter was signed with two. So Cora's friends picked up on this immediately. By the end of February, so she disappears at the beginning of February, supposedly to go back to America. And by the end of February, Ethel Lenev, H.H.'s pretty young secretary, had moved into the house at 39 Hilldrop Crescent with her lover, who again was like 20 years her senior and also gross looking. And she started wearing Cora's jewelry out. You know, Cora had a lot of beautiful like costume jewelry and then really fancy expensive stuff. And this bitch just started wearing it about town. So all of this coupled with the fact that no one had heard from Cora since that one weird letter with her name spelled wrong caused Cora's friends to question her creepy little husband again. Now he was telling them that Cora had fallen ill in California and her condition was dire. On March 26th, a death notice for Belle Elmore, this time spelled correctly, appeared in a California newspaper listing her date of death as March 23rd, 1910. On April 7th, that same obituary appeared in newspapers in London, and around this time, H.H. began telling people that he and Miss Ethel had gotten married. Uneasy about this whole super shady situation, Cora's friends reached out to her family in California. H.H. had told them that Cora died at his son's house in Los Angeles, so they contacted H.H.'s son Otto to offer their condolences, get a little more information, and he was very confused because his father had written him a letter saying that Cora died, yes, in California, but while visiting family in San Diego, and Otto hadn't seen his stepmother in years and years. And also, like, did he really even care what happened to her? She came into the picture and married his dad after his dad had dumped him across the country, so they probably didn't really have, like, a super close relationship. Um, Anyway, beside the point, so... Armed with all of this super sketch information, and this is probably my favorite part of this story, one of Cora's closest friends, a strong woman who performed under the name Volcana, (laughs) went to Scotland Yard and demanded that they look into Cora's disappearance. So on July 9th, 1910, over five months now since anybody has seen Cora alive, Detective Chief Inspector Walter Dew of the British Metropolitan Police, the man that had led the infamously unsuccessful hunt for Jack the Ripper, visited the home at 39 Hilltop Crescent to ask one Holly Harvey Crippen a few questions. H.H. explained that all of these little inconsistencies were caused by the fact that he was indeed lying to everybody. What had happened, according to him, was he and Cora had a quarrel and she told him she couldn't take it anymore. She was leaving him, that she was running away back to America with one of her many lovers. H.H. was so humiliated by this that he lied and faked her death, in part so that he could marry wife number three. If his wife just abandoned him, he's still married, he can't get remarried, but if she's dead he's free to marry his teenage secretary, Ethel. So uh, he shows Detective Dew around the house, which seemed to be in order. Of course, 
Even if something happened, the house is going to be in order. It's July. Cora's been missing since February. Um, and de- Detective Do, not good at detectiving at all. So he buys the story, hook, line, and sinker, pats old HH on the back, and bids him adieu. But HH and Ethel flipped the fuck out as soon as he was gone. So what did they do? The only logical thing they could think of. H.H. shaved off his signature straggly mustache. Ethel cut and dyed her hair. And the two fled to Germany, traveling as father and son. (laughs) First of all, H.H. should have played the son because he was five foot three and he was just a tiny little man. So they bought two tickets for the SS Montrose, a passenger liner bound for Canada. Had H.H. and Ethel not fled, Deputy Dewey over here probably wouldn't have given the case a second thought. But their disappearance raised all of the red flags, and Scotland Yard returned to the home at 39 Hilltop Crescent the next day, July 10th, to conduct a more thorough search. Four searches, actually. Uh, On the first three, they found nothing amiss, but during the fourth search, down in the cellar, an investigator noticed a loose brick in the floor and then several more loose bricks and loose dirt. So they began digging and before long, they made the gruesome discovery of a human torso devoid of any bones. A human torso with no bones inside it. The body's arms, legs, and head were nowhere to be found. So obviously this is the torso of Cora Crippen, right? Who else could it possibly be? So the hunt for her killer husband was on. Back aboard the SS Montrose, things were getting weird. Crew and passengers alike were paying special attention to this strange father-son duo traveling with them largely because they were abnormally affectionate and constantly holding hands. Bruh. Like, they didn't even try. They weren't even trying to fake their identities. But okay. So the ship set sail from Germany to Canada on July 20th, 1910. So news of the murder of Cora Crippen and the search for H.H. and Ethel had been dominating the headlines for over a week. As such, the ship's captain, George Kendall, had those exact fugitives on the brain as he and his crew watched the odd behavior of this father and son. And when they looked just a little more closely, it was clear that the son was not a boy at all, but a young woman. Uh, And they also noticed that the father had this super weird beard um, that appeared to be freshly missing its mustache. Lucky for Scotland Yard and very, very unlucky for H.H. Crippen, the SS Montrose had a newfangled piece of machinery on it called a wireless transmitter, the creation of genius inventor Guglielmo Marconi. Just before the... I probably said that wrong and I'm sorry, but I'm doing my best here. Just before the ship sailed out of range, Captain Kendall had his telegraphist send a wireless telegraph to British authorities that said have strong suspicions that Crippen, London cellar murderer, and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off, growing beard, accomplice dressed as a boy. Manner and build, undoubtedly a girl. 
When Deputy Dewey received this telegraph, he boarded the White Star Line's SS Laurentic. Now, this was two years pre-Titanic, so we're not afraid of the White Star Line yet. The SS Laurentic was much faster than the SS Montrose, so British authorities reached Canada before HH and Ethel did. And here's what's incredible. The entire time that these two ships are making their way from Germany to Canada, they were in communication via these wireless transmitters. And as is the nature with unprotected wireless communications, which they had just learned how to communicate wirelessly, they weren't thinking about like protecting those communications, the messages were easily intercepted. Those messages then inevitably reached the press. So the whole world was following along for 11 days as this transatlantic chase took place. And the only people who didn't know what was happening were the passengers on the two ships. The crew knew, of course, and everyone that knows how to read a newspaper knew. But that daft fool H.H. Crippen had no idea. Imagine being the subject of an international manhunt and having the authorities right on your heels as you're fucking dining on caviar on this ship and you ha- you're the only person that doesn't know that you're about to get caught. The whole world is like watching this and eating their popcorn at home. Well, not watching it, reading it in the newspaper. It was 1910, but you, you know what I'm saying. So when the SS Montrose entered the calm, shallow waters of the St. Lawrence River in Canada, Deputy Dewey and his men boarded the ship disguised as pilots. When Crippen approached, Deputy Dewey whipped off his pilot's hat and revealed his true identity a la Scooby-Doo. When he realized he was caught, Crippen said, Thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I just couldn't stand it any longer. That's me impersonating H.H. Crippen, impersonating a British person. So, let's see what you get there. Back in the olden days, years did not pass between a person's arrest and their trial. In the case of H.H. Crippen, it was less than three months. His trial began on October 18th, 1910, and lasted four days. And I mean, it seems like a pretty open and fucking shut case, right? But let's discuss the arguments on both sides. There was a body, but there wasn't really, because all they had was a boneless torso, nothing to identify. The arms, legs, and head were never found. And of course, in 1910, there was no blood typing or DNA testing. But prosecutors argue that they were able to positively identify the remains as Cora's because there was a scar that was consistent with Cora's scar from when she had her ovaries removed. Also, traces of sedatives were found in the the what the blood, the tissue, the stomach. I'm not really sure. They didn't even have a whole body, but somehow they were able to identify sedatives in its system. The sedative scoplamine specifically, which was one that Dr. Crippen had just purchased days before Cora disappeared. The prosecution also presented a piece of men's pajama top with the label attached. Cora had given her husband the exact pair of pajamas their last Christmas together. So with this piece of a body, there was a piece of a pajama shirt that still had the label attached. 
Um, And so when they searched the house, police did find the pajama bottoms of the set, but they never found the top. So they were confident that this was a pajama set that H.H. owned. Uh, There were also curlers that were found with the torso, hair curlers with dyed blonde hair attached. Um, So the curlers matched Cora's curler set and the hair matched her hair color. Not to mention there was the whole thing about H.H. lying about where Cora was, forging a letter to her friends, and publishing a fake death notice in the newspaper, uh, and then disguising himself and fleeing the country when the cops came asking questions. Like, I think I've seen this film before. I think we all have. The defense, though, bless them, they defended their booties off. They were like, A, you can't even tell if that torso belongs to a male or a female. It could be anybody's. The Crippens just moved into this house a few years ago. Who knows what kind of shit went on here before. Anybody could have buried that torso there. Two, your scar theory is bullshit. Look at this sample under a microscope. There are hair follicles. Like, there's hair growing out of this mark, and scar tissue does not grow hair. So it's not a scar. It's just like a fold in the tissue because this is a piece of skin. C, why would Dr. Crippen bury the boneless torso in his own basement after going to the trouble of hiding the head, the limbs, and the bones that belonged in said torso? That makes no sense for him to get rid of all the rest of the body parts, but keep this one. As far as the sedative they found in the system that matched sedatives he had purchased, He's a doctor. He buys all kinds of medicines all the time, and this is one that he just purchases regularly regardless. The pajamas and the hair curlers planted. How convenient that the piece of pajama that was ripped off and left behind had the full maker's label on it, which made it irrefutably identifiable as a piece of clothing that HH owns. Super convenient. And the curlers with hair attached, there's no head. There is no head, but there are curlers with hair attached. That doesn't make any sense. Um, And yeah, like I agree with definitely that last part, if not some of the rest of it, definitely that last part there. Dr. Crippen's defense maintained that Cora ran away with one of her many lovers back to the U.S. But here's the thing. She never resurfaced, ever. She had sisters, parents, family, friends. So even if she hated her husband and wanted to run away back to America and hide out for a little while in her new love nest with her new lover, like she would have resurfaced at some point and she never did. As far as a motive, the prosecution (laughs) didn't really need to give one, did they? They had quite a bit of evidence. Um, Seems pretty overwhelming. But one theory was that H.H. was dosing Cora with sedatives because she was so crazy and he accidentally overdosed her and killed her and then flipped out and dismembered the body and all the, all the rest of it that came after. Another theory, and this one was more of just kind of a rumor, was that Ethel confided in a friend that H.H. had killed Cora because she had syphilis. There was even a theory that the torso in the cellar wasn't Cora's, but that of a patient Dr. Crippen performed an illegal abortion on. And 
then there were the Ripper rumors. Because Dr. Crippen was a doctor, because the body had been so precisely dismembered, and because Dr. Crippen did spend some time in London around the time of the Ripper murders, there was speculation that he might be Jack the Ripper. But those were debunked pretty quickly. Um, They did exist, though, nonetheless, and it was a theory that was explored by detectives. In the end, the jury wasn't buying what Crippen was selling, and it took them only 27 minutes to convict him and sentence him to death for the murder of his wife. He was hanged a month later on Wednesday, November 23, 1910, at Pentonville Prison in London. He was buried in the prison cemetery in an unmarked grave, but they did bury him with a photo of Ethel per his request. Speaking of Ethel, this bitch, uh, she was only charged with complicity of murder and she was exonerated. Before he was hanged, H.H. wrote a will and he made Ethel the executor of his estate. And this plucky little bitch actually went after Cora's assets. Cora had died without a will because she wasn't expecting to die because she'd been murdered which meant that everything she had went to her husband, who was arrested immediately after it being discovered that she'd been murdered, so he didn't have time to spend anything or do anything. Um, So now all of his stuff, now that he's dead, went to Ethel, and she filed a petition saying her stuff was his stuff, and his stuff is now my stuff, so her stuff is mine. And the courts were like, absolutely the fuck not. They shut that down real quick. So after the trial, Ethel moved to Toronto for a few years, and then she eventually returned to London under a fake name so that people wouldn't know who she was. Um, but they did. They, they figured it out. She was never really able to escape the stigma of being Dr. Crippen's murderous mistress, Uh, She did eventually get married, though, and she had a couple of kids and lived a very long life, died in 1967. And while this sounds like the end of our story, it is not, because the wildest twist is coming right now. So hold on to your butts. In October of 2007, Michigan State University forensic scientist David Ferran tested the DNA of the remains found in the cellar against the DNA of three of Cora Crippen's great nieces. And it didn't fucking match. Furthermore, new technology was used to retest the flesh, and it was determined that it belonged to a male. So yes, I am really sitting here telling you that the boneless torso found in the cellar at 39 Hilldrop Crescent did not, did not belong to Cora Crippen. When I tell you that my jaw dropped when I read this, like, what a fucking twist. What a fucking twist a hundred years later. But that doesn't mean that H.H. didn't kill Cora. Like, he definitely did, right? And I feel like... It's almost kind of poetic justice right there. He kills his wife, disposes of the body successfully, perfect crime, right? And then the police come, search his house, and find a different body in his cellar, 
possibly one that he didn't even know was there. They misidentify this body as belonging to his missing wife and hang him anyway. <laughs> yeah. The telltale torso over here. Somebody make it a movie. Okay, please. Another interesting thing I read is that some of Dr. Crippen's relatives here in Michigan have been lobbying to have his remains returned to the U.S. Why? Just, like, why? We don't, we don't want him. We don't need him. We already had to take John List back after he died. Now you want to add this jabroni to the murder pile? No, thank you. So following this bombshell DNA evidence in 2007, an appeal was filed to have Dr. Crippen's murder conviction posthumously overturned. But in 2009, that request was denied by the UK's Criminal Cases Review Commission. On the topic of Dr. Crippen's family that we were just talking about a minute ago, his mother died in 1909, so she mercifully missed all of this. But his father lived through the murder and the transatlantic boat chase uh, and the trial, only to die of a broken heart on November 18, 1910, five days before his only child was hanged. Um, Myron Crippen died truly believing in his son's innocence. Actually, the article I read was like, yes, he had rheumatism, and yes, he had severe pneumonia, but it was the broken heart that killed him, for sure. And this, friends, concludes the story of the other HH, the second University of Michigan med school student who was suspected of being Jack the Ripper, was hanged for murder, and had a book written about him by Eric Larson. How weird is that? Like, what a crazy coincidence. My primary source for today's episode was the book Thunderstruck by Eric Larson, which of course we carry at Dead Time Stories. Um, it's actually because we had the book in the store that I found out about this story. I had never heard this. Uh, and one day, several, several months ago, a customer came in. He was going to buy the book and... Um, he said, I always wondered if the guy in this book was related to the Crippens from the Crippen Auto Mall. And I was like, I don't know what words you're saying to me right now, sir. Uh, and so he kind of opens the book to a page early on talking about this fucking H.H. Crippen from Coldwater, Michigan. And I was like, oh, shit, another old timey Michigan murder. Let's let's jot that down for future use. And today, today was that day. Before we go today, I do want to do a super weird thing. So, um, as usual, I'm running behind schedule. You'll still get this episode on Wednesday, but um, I'm sitting here recording on Tuesday. Did all the research Sunday, Monday. So, as I'm sitting down to do the research, I'm like, I just don't want to do this. I am too much of a control freak to ever let anyone else do my research and my writing. But... Like I had the thought that it would be nice if I could turn that job over to someone else because I didn't want to do it. And who did I choose? My friend and yours, ChatGPT. So I'm going to share this with you because it's so freaky to me. But I um, used the website OpenAI, which is the official ChatGPT website. And the prompt I gave was, write a podcast episode about Holly Harvey Crippen. It took ChatGPT like 30 seconds, maybe a little less, and I'm going to read you what it wrote for a couple reasons. We'll talk about those reasons at the end, but first I'm going to read it to you. 
Funny fact, it gave me a new podcast name, but don't worry, I'm not changing it again. Uh, Okay, here we go. And I I didn't change a single word. Like, that's hard for me because I'm an editor at heart, but I didn't change a single word. This is exactly how it read. Welcome back, listeners, to another thrilling episode of Legends and Infamy. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. It just said insert name here, so I guess I did make one little, one little alteration. And today we dive in to the gripping story of a man whose name sent shockwaves through the early 20th century. Join us as we unravel the enigmatic tale of Holly Harvey Crippen, a figure wrapped in mystery and intrigue. Holly Harvey Crippen was born on September 11, 1862, in Coldwater, Michigan. His life took a dramatic turn when he became a medical practitioner, a profession that would eventually lead him down a path of crime. But let's start from the beginning. Crippen, an intelligent and well-respected man, was married to his wife, Cora, a talented music hall performer. Er, first strike, first strike. She was not talented at all. Despite their outward appearances, their relationship was far from blissful. As the years went by, tensions mounted and infidelity plagued their marriage. On the surface, Harvey Crippen appeared to be an ordinary man, but behind closed doors, a sinister plan was unfolding. In 1910, Cora mysteriously disappeared from their home in Hilldrop Crescent, London. No, Hilldrop Crescent was the name of the street, so they didn't live in Hilldrop Crescent, they lived on Hilldrop Crescent. Get it together, Chad GPT. Crippen explained her absence by telling friends and neighbors that she had returned to America to care for a sick relative. But something didn't sit right with authorities. The suspicions were raised when Crippen's new lover, Ethel Lenev, was seen wearing Cora's jewelry and clothing. The police were called in to investigate, and what they discovered shocked the world. The police searched the Crippen residence and made a gruesome discovery in the basement. Buried beneath the brick floor were the mutilated remains of Cora Crippen. The investigation had turned into a manhunt, with Crippen and Lenev on the run. In an era when the world was captivated by the emerging field of forensic science, the chase for Harvey Crippen became an international sensation. Scotland Yard, in collaboration with transatlantic steamships, tracked down the fugitives aboard the SS Montrose, which was bound for Canada. Chief Inspector Walter Dew, a prominent figure in the case, boarded the ship and apprehended Lenev. The trial that followed was one of the most sensationalized events of all time, attracting the attention of the media and the public alike. Ah, ChatGPT, you forgot to tell us that they also arrested H.H. Crippen, but that's okay. Crippen's defense team, led by Edward Marshall Hall, argued that the remains found were not Cora's, but rather those of a scarred and disfigured man. I don't think they said that, but okay. The prosecution presented evidence suggesting otherwise, including a piece of pajama found with the remains bearing a distinctive label matching those from Crippen's tailor. Ultimately, the jury found Harvey Crippen guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. 
His accomplice, Ethel Lenev, was acquitted of the murder charge, but faced public scorn for her association with Crippen. The story of Harvey Crippen is not just a tale of crime, but also one that highlights the impact of emerging forensic techniques on criminal investigations. Crippen's case was a landmark in the history of forensics as it was the first time that a suspect had been caught with the help of wireless telegraphy. Telegraphy? Telegraphy? That's not a good word either. Um, A technological marvel of the same time. How freaky, like, ChatGPT wrote that whole thing in, like, 20 seconds and only got a couple little details <laughs> wrong. So I tell you this for two reasons. Um, also, it made prompts for me to add dramatic music at points, police sirens, the sound of a newspaper printing press, courtroom ambience, a gavel bang, Morse code beeps. Like, it really wanted me to go all in with the sound effects. But here's the thing, a couple things. One, we need to start being a lot more careful where we're getting our true crime and our information from because I very easily could have just read that to you guys as the podcast episode and it doesn't give me any sources or anything like that. So where ChatGPT pulled this information from, we don't know. And it, I could never do that, but if you think there's not people out there having ChatGPT write them podcast episodes and YouTube scripts and all these other things that they are then sharing without fact-checking the information, you are wrong, my friends. So it's more important now than ever to be super, super careful where we're getting our information and what we're choosing to then share with other people. But also, like that was a pretty short story. I think it was like 500 words or so. Um, look at all of the juicy, juicy details that it left out. So while all of this AI technology and all of these advancements are A, terrifying as fuck, but two, fascinating, um, I, I don't, I feel in less danger of losing my job, as it were, than I did before I did this little experiment, because ChatGPT could never. Like, could never. Anyway, that's it for today's episode, my friends. Uh, Thank you for being patient during my spring hiatus. Another new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. If you don't already, make sure you follow us on all of the socials. Um, Violent Ends Podcast on Facebook. uh, Violent Ends Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. The Jen Carpenter on TikTok. Um, and also Violent Ends Podcast on the Instagram. So make sure you're following us so you can keep up to date with everything going on. And uh, yeah, until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. <laughs>